0: What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens. With all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place, grow your business in Slack.
1: Visit slack.com to get started.
0: They lived in the past because they ended up in a place where the past was better than their reality. And so I I never wanted that. And, And I quickly realized I always wanted to be happy and I feel satisfied in, you know, whatever state I was in life and I never wanted to be like a, uh, if I could, I woulda, shoulda, you know, like, yeah, I've never wanted to live in that. And, and I think another way to summarize that is really wasted potential. I just never wanted to be that. I never wanted to be the guy stuck in that couple block radius that felt like our entire world when I was a kid.
1: You're listening to What I Know. I'm Kevin Ryan, filling in for Christine Ligorio Chafkin. Today's episode find the missing piece in a massive industry. The path to building a successful startup is rarely easy. Even if your parents have loads of money or you're friends with a well connected CEO, you still have to come up with a plausible business idea, then work hard and execute on your plan to even have a chance of entrepreneurial success. So what about when you're not born into such privileged circumstances? What if your life looked something like Delane Parnell's? Today, Delane is the founder of Playverses, a Los Angeles company that makes a platform on which high schoolers can compete against one another in team-based video games, or as they're more commonly known, eSports. Delane founded PlayVerses in 2018, and today it has more than 100 employees, $107 million in funding, and tens of thousands of customers. Back when it was first getting started, Delane raised the largest Series A venture round ever for a consumer company with a Black founder. That funding round is what first led me to Delane. Just before that news went public, I wrote a piece about Delane for Inc. Magazine. Upon interviewing him, it was clear that his tale was unlike so many of the success stories that you hear. You know, the kind that whined from a suburban upper-middle-class home, through Harvard Business School, and out to Palo Alto. I loved Delane's story and continued listening to it, which ended up becoming a book that I recently published called Ahead of the Game, a chronicle of Delane's journey from the west side of Detroit to the CEO role that he holds today. But before he was at the helm of an innovative esports company, Delane was a kid in a rough neighborhood just trying to survive.
0: You know, I grew up in a pretty rough neighborhood, to say the least, uh, on the west side of the Detroit. Um, and that was during a time where there was a lot of sort of gang violence. Uh, there was a... Uh, a bunch of essentially crews battling with one another. And they all went to the sort of local high school within my neighborhood. It was called Henry Ford High School. And there was this really violent sort of shooting that took place where some high schoolers from, you know, my neighborhood and opposing neighborhoods got into a fight. And it ended in some of the kids coming back and killing and shooting some of the other kids. And my mom wanted to keep us, myself and my brother, sort of just out of the neighborhood at times when she wasn't home, um, just to sort of minimize the possibility that we get into trouble. And so, uh, one day we were at a, a cell phone store. It was a wireless giant at the time, and the owner, his name was Sam, and you know she mentioned to Sam like, "Hey, do you need someone to, to sweep up, to hold a sign, to like just do some do some work for you?" And but he likely didn't need me, but he took me in. Uh, he just taught me everything, you know, about at least at that level of business, just principles of being a man, the value of character um, and honesty and the idea that you should always sort of put your best foot forward in sort of everything that you do. He taught me the value of ownership. Sam is uh, an Eric. And so, you know, he grew up outside of the U.S. in poverty for a great part of his life. And so he was an extremely hardworking man. His entire family was And they all had, you know, various businesses and they had sort of a deep belief in like ownership and ownership being the way to accrue uh, wealth. And so he sort of passed that along to me. And through that, I became pretty good at selling cell phones, Uh, so much so that the store that um, Sam owned and operated grew to one of the top stores within the region. And Sam's empire grew from just one store to many stores. Yeah. And, you know, I learned so much uh, through that process. I sort of took Sam's advice. And, you know, by the time I was 16, I had tons of money saved. I took the money that I earned. I put a proposal together. I printed out a list of all of the neighboring Metro PCS stores. And I went to talk to all of the owners of those stores and said, hey, you know, my reputation, you know who I am, um, you know what I've done for Sam. It's a pretty small, tight knit community. And so everyone sort of you know knew what was happening. I say, hey, I'm I'm looking to become a partner with someone and help take their store from wherever it is today to this sort of success that, you know, we've experienced at the store uh, with Sam. Most people sort of laughed me out the door. To be honest with you, it was pretty demoralizing. And then there was, you know, one person that I work with who connected me with some guys who awesomely saw the vision. We became partners. Um, We ended up owning a couple cell phone stores um, that sold Metro PCS phones and those stores performed well. And we were able to exit those stores too pretty quickly. And so without that experience, working at that cell phone store, doing everything from cleaning the bathrooms to counting the inventory uh, and arranging the inventory, picking up inventory, holding the sign, sweeping the floors, cleaning the showcases, taking payments, whatever it was that just Sam, you know, asked me to do, you know, I wouldn't be here today and I stand on that. That was certainly the base of my interest and you know desire for entrepreneurship.
1: I mean that shows a level of maturity that most people never achieve, but to do that in your teenage years is crazy. And and one aspect of that is just being, you know, smart with your money and not, you know, going out and spending it like I was addicted to
0: success, man. I, I still am in many ways. You know, I, I'm super competitive, just you know, there's like this intrinsic component of me that is just naturally competitive. I think that you know, one way its not the only way, but one way to measure success is by the money that you accrue. Right. Because that gives you the opportunity and the privilege to have flexibility in your time and to have this sort of currency to then invest in other things to sort of compound wealth. And so, you know, I was I was uh, and, and obviously in part of things that Sam taught me at that age. But I was so hungry for success that, you know, I would go to school every single day. And, you know, leverage the school, like leverage that network, Uh, not only my campus, which had a couple thousand kids, but the neighboring campuses and built network, use social media, the cell phones. All of the kids would bring their parents to my store to like purchase phones from me. I was deeply passionate about if I wasn't in school, I was at the store. Like if there was a break or in the rare instances where I got suspended for whatever reason, I was working nonstop and I would be there when I wasn't in school, open to close, even beyond close, seven days a week. You could not put my grandmother told my mom once, I'm gonna have to call child protective services uh, because he's working, he's working more (laughs) hours than you know, most adults work in addition to school. I just love the grind. I love the idea that I could do well in something. I mean it also like it did keep me out of trouble, you know, and there were a ton of times where people that I grew up with and I, you know, were my friends and some are still my friends, they would find themselves in some unfortunate situations because of decisions that they made, and I likely would have been involved in that just had I been sitting at home. Fortunately, I wasn't because in some cases, you know, people lost their lives. And so, so yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful and thankful for that opportunity. And I haven't spoken to Sam in years, but I have to get his info, man, in and and try to get in touch with him because because uh, that guy really helped change my life.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it beyond somebody like him, you know, who, who were some of the people that you really looked up to? Like, what was the blueprint for success as you saw it?
0: Oh, so many people, I mean, for different reasons, when I was growing up in the neighborhood, one of the things that motivated me was, uh, you know, I'd be around a bunch of guys who always lived in the past, like their glory years were always in the past, you know, they'd be mid twenties or thirties and they'd be talking about, you know, what they were doing in high school, whom they dated you know, what cars they drove, you know, what outfit they had, and no one else had, you know, whatever sort of, you know, reference they wanted to make. But it was the point was, is that they lived in the past, because they didn't choose the right path. And they ended up in a place where the past was better than their reality. And so I never wanted that. And, And I quickly realized, you know, when I was young, that like, that just wasn't the direction that I wanted to go. I always wanted to be happy and I feel satisfied in you know, whatever state I was in life. And I never wanted to be like, uh, if I could, I would have, should have. You know, like, yeah, I've never wanted to live in that. And, and I think another way to summarize that is really wasted potential, right? Because I'd be around people whom were incredibly smart at math. They helped me. These would be guys in my neighborhood who may have sold drugs, may have been violent criminals, but they would help me with my homework, for example, you know, would not be on the block and they'd be like incredible with algebra, for example. And I'd be like, man, why aren't you, you know, utilizing this skill and doing something, you know, with your life? But like they just got in the way of themselves. Right. And they had this this skill that they could have leveraged, maybe even potentially became an accountant. Uh, like who knows, a CFO even, you know, to a higher degree. And they and instead they were just kind of wasted potential when they lived in the past. I never wanted to be the guy stuck in that couple block radius that felt like our entire world when I was a kid. One instance, it was the people that I didn't want to be that motivated me, you know, and were like my blueprint for what not to do. And then there were people like Dame Dash and Jay-Z and Biggs, whom I uh, look up to through either the Internet or through just kind of barbershop conversation or through the music that they produce. And, you know, I saw the entrepreneurship I saw um, the businesses that they built in, uh, in music and in entertainment and sort of in the surrounding auxiliary spaces uh, through Rockefeller. And I was really inspired by that. I was like, wow, these guys had the door slammed on them, you know, potentially hundreds of times, no different than the startup when raising money. And yet they banded together as a crew and said, hey, we can do this on our own and we don't know everything But we don't know what we don't know and we'll learn, you know, along the way. And they never let adversity stop them. Every time there was a barrier, they just found the
1: way to jump over it. I know the city of Detroit has made big strides, you know, in in the past few years. But, uh, you know, the time period we're talking about is what, you know, the the mid 2000s, mid to late 2000s and I know that something that was meaningful for you is when you uh, went to a tech conference out in, I think, San Francisco, right? So what was that experience like, you know, your first time hopping on a plane and, and being surrounded by founders and the tech world? And and then can you uh, talk a bit about, you know, how you kind of tried to uh, replicate that back in Detroit?
0: Yeah, wow. I haven't thought about this stuff in so long. Look, uh, you know, i would never been outside of Detroit alone. i would never been on a plane before. I learned about through Twitter, the launch festival. Uh, I, I don't know if they called it the launch conference or launch festival. I believe it's festival, but Jason Calacanis was organizing it. This is at the time when TechCrunch Disrupt was everything. And now Launch was you know this awesome platform for startups looking to get discovered and funded. And this guy named Jonathan Treese, who runs Ludlow Ventures, which is a early stage uh, seed venture capital fund based in Detroit. He had said, hey, we're sponsoring a number of people who want to go to San Francisco to go to the launch festival. Basically, reach out to me if you want you know, a ticket, a free ticket. I sent him this long email <laughs> as to why that ticket would mean everything to me and why I thought being able to go into that environment and learn uh, would be life changing. And, you know, he graciously provided me that ticket. And I ended up going out to San Francisco on a flight by myself, completely lost in the airport. The entire process was super foreign to me. And no one in my few people in my family at that time had even traveled. And so no one could really provide me direction. I get to San Francisco, um, realize I needed a hotel. And so a lot of places wouldn't allow me to stay for whatever reason, I wasn't old enough, right? And so they wouldn't allow me to stay there. And so, you know, it was, I think, a Holiday Inn Express near the airport, you know, the manager decided to allow me to stay. And so I booked there and, you know, I went to the festival, overdressed, by the way. I was like basically nearly in full suit, um, completely (laughs) overdressed. And... (laughs) And and I was just there. I just spent all of my time at the festival across the demo pit, which is, you know, there was like these this large area where every startup had like a some sales collateral, a TV to demo their product and kind of a high top table. And, you know, just thousands of people would walk through it every day talking to these startups. I talked to literally every single startup and I would collect these cards and on the back of the card, I would write kind of points, you know, from the conversation, whether it be things that they needed or people they wanted introductions to, or just kind of just talking points. At the end of each day, there was a multi-day festival. So at the end of each day, I would literally go back to my hotel because I wasn't old enough to go out. And and I also just didn't have interest in going out. I would just follow up with everyone. Hey, we met today. You know, it was really interesting what you said, X, Y, Z, and I found this stuff online and I'm going to ring off these introductions to you. And, and then I would go back to the festival the next day and people be like, man, incredible follow-up. You know, it's like now I've built this connection. I've established the connection. So then they introduced me to new people who came to the festival. And I sort of built up a little bit of a community there. And by, you know, maybe day three or so, I'd end up meeting this guy named Thomas Court, who was, uh, I guess, at the time, like a famous Googler, or he just left Google. Him and his wife, I believe, were starting AngelPad because this was like the sort of start of, you know, in the rise of Accelerators incubators in the country. And Thomas says, Hey, I want to go and look at the startups in the demo pit. And I said, Hey, man, I've already seen all of them. I can take you to the best 10. And I literally took him to 10, a number of them he was really excited about. And he's like, Man, I need to tell Jason that every speaker should effectively have a person like you. And he said, Hey, you know, you should come work for me at AngelPad. Like I'm starting this thing. You know, we can't pay you, but it'll be a great opportunity. And I didn't understand anything beyond you can pay me. (laughs) Unfortunately, because, you know, I was taking taking care of myself in Michigan. You know, obviously I had my own place at the time. So I, I needed to be able to make money to survive. And, you know, I had no concept of internship. And so, you know, I was like, man, that sounds cool, but you can't pay me. So it probably doesn't work. He did offer me housing, which, by the way, in San Francisco, it's like, far more important than even payment. (laughs) And so, you know, ultimately, I like, you know, we had some follow-up exchange about it, but like, end up not taking the opportunity. But I ended up building this really, you know, cool community. And through that, I witnessed a fireside chat conversation. And I just loved how authentic the, the conversation was. And I think that because it was so casual, you know, you could effectively deliver your points and people could resonate with that, much like podcasts, right? And, and, I was like, man, I should do this in Detroit. So all of those people I met, the ones I thought were most interesting, or I saw had some sort of heat and appeal. I I, I followed up with them once I got home, hey, would love to bring you to Detroit to do something similar because, you know, I wanted to find other people like what I found in that community I established in San Francisco to, you know, hang with in Detroit and was end up being like guys like Alexis Ohanian, Charles Adler, uh, Alexis Ohanian started Reddit, one of the best investors in the world. Charles Adler, who ended up starting on Kickstarter. So like all of these guys, and they would I would pay for them through money that I made outside of tech to come to Detroit. And then, you know, we'll put it on Eventbrite, post it on social, started building up an email list and started this event series. And the event series grew from a couple of people to literally thousands of people would come to these events. And they ultimately would pay for a ticket. And, you know, I would spend a handful of days with these people that we brought to the city, building reputation, learning a ton. And it was great because a lot of great, Things happened from the basis of that event. People went on. One, the, the general thing is like people found other people, right? Like they found community amongst others who were interested in startups and tech. And that was really difficult to do in Detroit. Beyond that, the first co working space in downtown Detroit formed. The co founders met each other through these events. They went on to start a co working space. It's a massive community now. It's called Bamboo Detroit. People got funding. I remember there was a startup called Bankjoy. That became one of the first Detroit startups that got into YC, and that that happened through the event. We brought the TechStars crew to Detroit. That was one of the first times they've been to Detroit. They end up, you know, making some connections through some dinners and other events that were hosted, like meetings, etc., that were hosted. They end up bringing the TechStars to Detroit. So, like all of these things happened, you know, a big catalyst from this event. It was an important early part in the birth of the Detroit startup community.
1: When we come back, I'll talk with Delane about the chance meeting that led to him founding his eSports startup, but first a quick break.
0: You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data and information in one AI powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding
1: required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So at this point, you're still just 22 years old. You work in venture capital for a little bit, and then you end up working for a Dan Gilbert backed company called Rocket Fiber.
0: That was a really great ride that was actually where i discovered esports you know we got a customer support ticket um, of all things from and the vp of customer support her name is christina she brings this ticket hey some guy says his kid plays esports whatever that is they want to use our internet and he's willing to get the space above our office to use it if we're willing to like hook it up for him and uh, so his kid can have some advantage in like competitive competitions and so Mark's like, hey, Delaney, you should look into it because maybe this is a way, you know, a use case for us in terms of how we market the product. And so, you know, we set up a meeting and I ultimately end up meeting this guy named Chris Shia, whom I have a ton of thoughts with respect to this guy. But uh, but uh, but ultimately, like one thing that Chris Shia did was like Chris Shia was effective. Like, you know, overarching, he was a dad who had a son and his son was really passionate about gaming. His son has grown up now to be a professional Call of Duty player in the franchise league. You know, he was so excited to like help his son uh, accomplish his passions that he'd invested a ton into eSports. He, he probably ended up spending million. This is before eSports had really any venture, it, before zero venture investment into teams. You know, he was spending millions of dollars for his son to basically have the best team. He was pulling the best players from other organizations onto the team. You know, he was supplying them with salaries before, you know, most teams even had salaries. He, you know, had a private plane. He wrapped a private plane with the team's brand, you know, like he was really investing all out. And one of the things that he was interested in doing is like building out kind of his own team's campus before teams even had campuses. So that way they could just compete and, you know, live in the same place together. And, and anyway, they wanted our internet infrastructure because most competitions were being hosted through like tournament bracket sites online. And so... Mark and myself, we had this meeting and, you know, he's given us like the rundown on like what esports is, where the space is, where opportunities are. And we get really excited about it as builders and entrepreneurs, even beyond Rocket Fiber and the use cases there. And so we basically whiteboard a number of concepts or ideas that we wanted to pursue. And one of them was this thing. I forget the name, but maybe it was like ESEL or something like that. The idea was that we wanted to go and aggregate IP from the publishers and we wanted to, much like Play Versus does even, and we wanted to create a central body um, for professional league play in a franchise way. So instead of like Riot and Activision and Blizzard and other publishers having their own franchise leagues that they operate independently, they would effectively give us the rights. And then we would operate the franchise leagues kind of under a central body like the NCAA. And so, you know, an organization might reflect like uh let's call it the University of Michigan, and they might play League of Legends. They might play Blizzard. I mean, they might play Overwatch. They might play Call of Duty. They might play Smash, whatever the games are. And we were going to leverage funding from Chris, whose family was really wealthy, and then also funding from um, Dan Gilbert. Ultimately, like, the project never really got off the ground. A lot of it was the publishers were resistant to providing those licenses. I remember we went to one publisher, whom I won't name because we're partners with them now, but they literally said there'll never be a franchise league in esports, And I mean, kind of goes without saying. I have all of the original like presentations and like emails, et cetera, here. It's really mind-blowing. Like I was already, you know, early on, on the cusp of like, oh, here's where this space needs to go. You know, before a lot of people were of the mind of that. Even some of these kind of legendary figures who were involved in that, that process, they were really resistant to like the idea. It was like, this is so much different than, how the spaces look. I don't know if we can accomplish this. Like, I don't know if this makes sense, but they ultimately had been in this space and they hadn't made any, you know, money from the value and effort that they put in. And so because of the financial backing, they were willing to like, you know, be a part of the ride. I became really obsessed with this idea. And it like, it, still today, I cannot shake it. The way that I think about it is um, eSports doesn't really have a competition infrastructure much like other sports. If you think about basketball, basketball has a competition infrastructure in the simplest form, really across four pillars. Interscholastic sports, so middle school, high school, college, local parks or gyms, right? Recreational play, Uh, daily fantasy sports for like fan entertainment, and then sportsbook for like betting, right? Esports doesn't have that. Esports has been productized really amongst the thousand pro players Whom participate across all of the kind of leagues, whether franchise or otherwise. And outside of that, if you're a gamer, you're essentially stuck playing in the in-game experience, which is not eSports. And if you want any appetite for competitive play, you have to use like a tournament bracket site and organize your own competition or somehow discover a competition in a very ad hoc, analog, inefficient way. Like, you know, and another highlight to this like the technology doesn't even exist. Like publishers have to build just a handful of APIs for authentication of account, a programmatic match creation or lobby creation, however you want to frame it, and the ability to pull win-loss results and performance stats. If publishers kind of universally agreed to what that flow looked like and they all built that technology, there could be so much value created, including... Then that's, that's the, like that's the sort of base of what needs to be created to build out this kind of competition infrastructure. And, you know, ultimately, I went to South by Southwest. Um, a lot of people know this story, pretty famous startup story. I met Peter Pham on the dance floor. Um, you know, he convinced me over months of time to move to L.A. And he sort of said the famous words to me when I explained to him, like, you know, what I believed in and in esports and where I saw opportunity, you know, in really building out this competition infrastructure, I explained to him you know, the pillars there. And he said, hey, you should start in high school. He says, what's more generational? Like the publishers wanted to make their games generational sports and and most still do. He said, what's more generational than playing on behalf of your high school? You know, he was in a CEO of a game publisher's office and they had a high school jersey framed in their office. He's like, you know, these guys care about that. You know, everyone does. Like, you know, it's it's a peak recognition for playing amateur sports. And so Peter and I spent a little amount of time together, not as much as people probably think early on. I was definitely like kind of on an island in the, the, the building of the, the business and their early days. You know, one thing that Peter was really like instrumental in for me was uh, our first meeting in person with the NFHS. We, I spent you know a couple months with them, built a relationship, having several meetings on my own, went down to pitch them about, you know, what I saw as the future of what high school esports could look like. And ultimately, we landed a partnership months later to build Play Versus. One other call out that I'll say is that we certainly put structure around high school esports and really define what it is today and what what most how most people basically like, you know, there are a lot of independent groups or or independent communities or other for profit companies sort of chasing the opportunity. And they've ultimately replicated our model. But we weren't the first like company to say, hey, there's some opportunity here. A lot of the other companies that existed, they were like ran by like either high school kids at the time, like the HSEL guys or a couple other groups who sort of saw value. And I went to these groups, by the way. This is something that a lot of people don't know. And I sort of realized that there was opportunity here. You know, I said, hey, well, ultimately, I just want to build a software company and I want to platform this. And by platforming this, I want to build the infrastructure. So I'm going to bring in the publishers and I'm also going to bring in the state associations and these kind of distrib- these governing bodies that really are great distribution pipes into the schools and they can give you the guidance that you need for sustain to like set this sport up for sustainability. Right. Because that's what they've done. And so I went to the other groups and I said, hey, you're good at organizing and league administration, etc. You know, let's do this thing together. Literally all of these groups. I said, let's all just join up and do this thing together. Man, they, they all laughed me out the door. The irony in that is. Now they just copy our model, which, by the way, for anyone who thinks that that's the best way to build a business, I highly recommend a book called The Innovation Stack.
1: Is that Jim McElvey?
0: Yeah. I mean, he talks about how the real innovation, and I'm paraphrasing, but the real innovation of like how these massive companies are built is through problem solving. So if you're doing something new, the innovation lies at um, you, you face a problem, you solve a problem, By solving that problem, you create new problems, you solve those problems. And there's like this cycle of that that kind of builds experience and knowledge and, you know, basically tighter systems. And so for businesses sort of outside looking into a business and seeing just the surface level, what you read, what's on the marketing pages, et cetera, is really difficult for you to replicate the business wholly um, beyond what you see at a surface level because you don't realize all of the problems that have been faced and solved to even get to that point. And that's why most businesses who just try to replicate another business never succeed, you know, and, and that happens all over, you know, uh, in every industry. I used to think when I was a young entrepreneur, that was the best way to build a business. Oh, Uber is really successful. So let me just build Uber, but in fucking Australia, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, it just, it's not, it's not really like, but it's not a great way to build a business, you know? And so I was one of my favorite books. I think that that's like a, uh, that's such a solid book every entrepreneur should read, but
1: so now Play Versus is in all 50 states, you know, you have a, a huge deal with the NFHS, which is basically the NCAA for high schools, uh, which allows these student athletes to, to earn varsity letters for playing esports. What are kind of the next steps? You know, um, when will Play Versus be a, a success in your mind and, and uh, what's kind of the sky for this company? Where do you see it going? I feel so lucky to be able to
0: work with so many incredible, thoughtful, mission-driven, product-driven, people with high integrity, high character, high class. You know, it's like humbling. You know, I've learned so much. I learn on a daily basis just from the people that I get a chance to interact with and work with to sort of build this experience. And so people often think that the money we raise or like all of the press or whatever, you know, vanity success, you know, that we've attained like, that's like the real glory of what we've done, but it's not. It's the team first, as I just described, and then it's our community. It's the kids. It's the fact that, you know, we've had kids or one kid in particular with no arms who plays League of Legends with his feet on a modified keyboard next to a kid that plays baseball and is a star. We've had the captain of a football team in Georgia chase down the esports coach in the midst of practice. Um and to join the Rocket League team and then lead the team to a state championship. It's the parent um, that discovered her kid play on the junior varsity esports team for his high school and was so moved by it and saw so much change through that single action in her child's life that she hopped on a plane with her kid, flew across the country just to spend one hour with our team um, to just share with us the impact that it's had on her kid's life. Those are the stories that like have been birthed through um, in the memories and the moments that have been birthed through the work that we do at Play Versus. And that's like the stuff that really matters to us. You know, Play Versus, we could walk away, and I think our general team feels like this, we could walk away having made zero dollars in salary or equity value from Play Versus. But if esports is ubiquitous at the high school level through the work that we've done, and that competition exists on Play Versus and we've created a quality experience that people care about every single day, we'd all be really happy. I know personally, I would be really happy. You know, I, when I first started the business, you know, as I said even earlier, you know, you know, I think of money as a measurement and, I, you know, I didn't think I didn't start the business with the intent of like, oh, I'm going to make a bunch of money. Like that literally never crossed my mind. I started the business because I was really passionate about the idea, but I knew that we could accrue value, like we could build a valuable business we started to apply this product into the market and we, we started to learn about the people that this participated in this ecosystem, I genuinely believe like, yo, like the most important thing for me is that we just make esports ubiquitous. And so like nothing else matters. Like our valuation, none of that matters. Not through the play versus entity. I say that also while saying I do have a fiduciary responsibility to our investors and I take that responsibility seriously. But for me personally, it's most important that, you know, we continue to impact people in a positive way and we create a safe environment, a less toxic environment for all of our players who otherwise would be playing at home with strangers who would feel uncomfortable, especially little girls. Like they feel uncomfortable playing because of the toxicity in the community in play versus a lot of our demographic or girls like, you know, it's like significantly more than. What you see, I mean, professional eSports is at zero, right? across coaches. This spans every league. It's primarily a white man or Asian man dominated culture. And our community is very diverse. It looks like what America looks like is, you know, people of all shades and ethnicities, people of all genders as well. And so we take great pride in that and not like being able to create those uh, a safe and productive way for kids to use esports as a platform for their life is like far more valuable to me than I could have imagined when I started the business. And so success is just accomplishing that. Through Play Versus is accomplishing that. I think broader success is how do we go out and build the competition infrastructure? Like our work is not done through just Play Versus. We still wanna build that competition infrastructure. That's necessary for the development and growth of esports long-term. And there are multiple products that need to be built there, but our work's not done. My work personally isn't done until we built that entire competition infrastructure. And so that's how I think about success today, uh, both through Play Versus and kind of more broadly. In terms of what the future looks like, um, look, we're just really focused on having conversations with our coaches, with the players, understanding the pain points that they're facing, the improvements that we need to make, whether it be product or, or league administration related, and we, we're you know committed to investing in that. We're a couple years into a sport and trying to build it on this accelerated timeline, whereas the comparable sports and activities have fifty plus years of history, you know, in development. And so, yeah, we're just going to continue to like learn what we need to get better at, and we're going to get better at it. Plain and simple. And we're also going to, you know, continue to focus on how we can, you know, advance esports by building some of those other products, by getting more publishers to invest into esports at the amateur level, uh, given the investments already there and continues to be there at the professional level, although that only services a thousand players, whereas amateur services 3,0, 3 billion, excuse me, players. Um, yeah, we're, we're going to just continue to focus on trying to push this industry forward. Uh, and I think that we've you know, made a small dent in the space. And, uh, hopefully we can continue to do that.
1: Delaine, thank you so much for being here. This has been great to hear about your journey and Play Versus and where it is today. Uh, I really appreciate the time.
0: Kevin, it is my pleasure and honor. Uh, thank you for, for all of the support over the years.
1: What's amazed me most in talking with Delane while reporting ahead of the game over the years is how he's been able to do so much with so little, all without feeling sorry for himself. In his mind, success was always inevitable. He just had to work harder than most people to get there. Delane is always thinking about his next move, seeking out that next connection that could be the one to help him blow the doors wide open. It's why he makes sure to learn about every single founder on the floor at startup festivals, or why he doesn't shy away from potentially awkward conversations with venture capitalists on the dance floor. It's something we can all learn from. We're all born holding a certain hand of cards. For some of us, the odds at the beginning might not look great. All you can do is keep playing the game the best you can, so that when that opportunity finally comes, you're ready to take it. What I Know is a production of Ink Magazine. We'd love it if you could subscribe or follow wherever you're listening. It'll help make sure you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. Also, if you have a friend who would love our show, please send them a link to your favorite episode. If you have an idea of a founder you'd love to hear from, drop us a note at whatiknowatink.com. Our producer, who is still trying to earn grandmaster status in League of Legends, is Joshua Christensen. Our production assistant is Blake Odom, and our editor is Nicholas Torres. I'm Kevin Ryan. Christine will be back next week. Thank you for listening to What I Know.